The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We finally made it to Jesus Christ. This is like, you know, catechesis session nine or something like that. I can't remember quite which. Um, but here we are finally. And, and it's, it's interesting to note, just as like a, a little bit of a, of a sideline comment here, that it took us this long because um, you would think that we'd start here. And we'd start with Jesus Christ. The reason we don't is because there's so much, that, so much groundwork that has to be laid before we get to this point. Um, and that should tell you something, that, that um, when we speak about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about just God sort of arriving on the scene, uh, having never done anything before, having always been remote, always been gone, always been you know, out of the building, out of the picture. Uh, no, uh, the, the Gospels speak of Jesus Christ coming in the fullness of time, right? This is Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, when the time had fully come, uh, meaning that there was lots going on before, and, and we specifically speak of the Old Testament here, um, but, but there's a lot to, to get before this point. Um, it, part of the shape of the ancient catechumenate was to, uh, to sort of do what's called pre-catechesis. Um, a catechesis in the things of God uh, that we can think about before we speak of the Incarnation, before we speak of Jesus Christ. So um, here we are, we've arrived. Um, the Apostles' Creed, Article 2, I believe in Jesus Christ. This is uh, question 48 in the Catechism on page 38. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human nature to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world the only mediator between God and fallen humanity. Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God. Those are two, uh, two concepts which uh, come directly from Holy Scripture. Uh, you know, the beginning of John's Gospel is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was light, and the light was the light of men. Uh, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, so, so you go on. Um, uh, what's going on here? John understands this, this, this eternal word, uh, which, by the way, is, is actually not a, um, it's not a, it's not a Jewish term. This is, a, this is actually a Greek philosophical term, the logos, the, 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 um, the idea that, um, in essence, all knowledge, all understanding, all, pretty much the all-encompassing word, right, um, takes on flesh. From the Jewish perspective, we can think simply of the Word of God, right? This, this idea that this idea very prevalent in the Old Testament that God speaks. What happens when God speaks? Things are created, uh, things happen. Um, what should we think about here? Well, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, I, I can't very well create things through my word, can I? I mean, I can't just say apple when an apple's right there. Um, why is that? If you really consider it for a moment, it's, really str it's a really strange thing, right? Because there's... Try as I might to have my word line up with reality, I'm not reality. I'm not reality itself. So when God speaks, um, uh, the, the things that are not come into being. Um, because... because wholly consistent with who he is. This, this flows out of him. Okay? Um, Jesus Christ is that eternal word of the Father. And also the Son of God. Now this is fun. This is a fun thought experiment. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Does anyone have a son in here? You've got a son, you've got a son, you've got a son, you've got a son, I've got a son, okay. Ever notice anything about him? Yeah, they, have, they are of the same nature as their father and mother. Yeah? I can't beget 
dog. Can I? Not at all. I can't beget apple. Um, I can only, if something, if, if, if anything is my son, what is it? It's me, right? So by saying the son of God, we mean that Jesus Christ is God. Um, we also mean to say, and I love that John Bear draws attention to this, we also mean to say, in a certain sense, not God. Um, so so um, not the Father, right? So is, is he God? Yes. Is he the Father? No. So this is, this, is, uh, this is a point of paradox. The second person of the Holy Trinity, um, this does not mean uh, that, uh, that uh, by, there's any kind of gradation here or any, um, any kind of uh, eternal subordination. Um, it simply means second, right? Um, second does not mean worst. It doesn't mean better. It doesn't mean anything. It just means uh, that we speak second of the Son. The second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human nature, and we're going to talk a lot more about this, so hang on to your seats, to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen humanity. There are these three words here. First, Savior. Um, savior uh, ought, ought simply to mean uh, that, that, uh, that, that we are in trouble and that uh, God sends a Savior uh, to save us from that trouble. It's the trouble of sin. Uh, the trouble of sin and death and ignorance and all the rest. Um, um, God sends Jesus Christ to save us from that. Also, Redeemer. What is a Redeemer? Anyone? What's that? It's like a buying back. Yeah, uh, you know, it's Sunday, so if you look in the paper and you see all the coupons, you know, and uh, you look at them and it always says on the bottom that there's a sort of cash value associated with them. It's like a tenth of a penny or something. And uh, what's, what's a coupon worth, really? It's a piece of paper, right? Isn't it? It's nothing. These days, you don't even have to have a piece of paper. You can just do it virtually. You just bring up your phone and show it to them, and they'll scan the code, and there you go. You're off the races. How does it go? Uh, but... You can redeem that coupon, right? And it's worth what? You know, a dollar off green beans or something like that. My my point is that 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 the worth of what is redeemed it's it's to it's to um, say that um, that that we're really worth nothing at the end of the day. God could start over if He wanted to. Um, God could wipe us off the face of the earth and put a whole new humanity on on the on the planet. Um, but but what He does instead is He He buys us back. He 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 um, he redeems us. Um, finally, mediator. A mediator is one who sits in between. Um, we, uh, we often sign contracts, you know, uh, such as that have mediation clauses. You know what these are? You've probably done it a million times in your life without even realizing it. Like when you, like when you register your new washer and dryer, right? There are times when you just say, I sign away my right to sue you. What we'll do instead is enter into mediation. Um, and, uh, and that means that you sit down with a mediator and the mediator sort of presents a solution. And the mediator is not, uh, is not partial to one party or the other, but, but simply is a go-between. Jesus Christ is a mediator in, the diff in a different sense, which is that he has stake in both God and man. And we're going to say more about that as time goes on. He is both. If you were to think about two nations at war, for instance, who would make the perfect mediator? Think about it. One whose mother was from one country and whose father was from the other. One who grew up in both places. Right? And we often have this in diplomacy. Um, we, we take, you know, for instance, if you want the perfect diplomat to the French, what do you do? You find someone who grew up, the son of, uh, of a French mother or a French father, who grew up in the United States, who maybe was schooled in, in Paris or something like that, um, and, and they become a diplomat, and they, they know the language perfectly in both senses, and they can do it. They can do it all. Um, this, is what, this is what it means to have a mediator. Um, and, and so Jesus stands between God and man. This is also the language of priesthood, by the way. A priest is a mediator. Um, the, the priest in the Old Testament represents, represents God to man and God to the people. Right? Um, and this is, a, this is an essential 
uh, aspect of, of the person of Jesus Christ between God and fallen humanity. Now we break down the names of Christ. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saves and is taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. In Jesus, God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. You remember in the Old Testament, uh, once you finish the Pentateuch, the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, what's the next one? You know why I love it, right? Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Okay. Uh, it's, it's those books. Joshua comes next, and we read about Joshua leading the people across the Jordan um, into the land of promise. The very first uh, cities they come up against are Ai and, and, um, and, uh, and Jericho. Joshua leads the people out of this desert captivity and into the land of promise. He is uh, a savior for the people. Um, Jesus' name is given, right? Not by Mary, but by whom? Probably by the Father through this angel who says, you shall call his name Jesus. Um, In Jesus, God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. There's a captivity to which we are captive, uh, and Jesus saves us from that captivity. What does Christ mean? Christos is the Greek term for the Hebrew title Messiah, meaning the anointed one. Old Testament kings, priests, and prophets were anointed with oil. Jesus the Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perfectly fulfill these roles, and he rules now as prophet, priest, and king over his church and all creation. I love this wonderful uh, kind of idea, uh, especially prevalent in the last couple centuries of Christian theology, this idea that Jesus fulfills all of these roles that we see in the Old Testament, right? Prophet, priest, king. But he, he fulfills them perfectly. Um, you can look back in the Old Testament and you can say, look, you got, you got people like David. David's obviously a king. What else is he? Actually, among the Jews, he's considered a prophet, um, precisely because of the writings of the Psalms and things like that. Um, he actually uh, is a messianic prophet. Um, is he a priest? Not really. Right? No, he dresses up like a priest at a certain point. But it's, it's kind of considered scandalous that he does this. He puts on the ephod, he puts on all these like, priestly garments, and he goes and he dances before the, before the ark, and, and it's considered unseemly. Why? Well, because he's not a priest. Um, he always has a priest alongside him. We think about Moses. Moses is a prophet for sure. Um, is he a priest? No, that's Aaron. Is he a king? Kind of. But when we get to Jesus, Jesus fulfills all of these roles perfectly. Um, and it's for this reason that we call an anointed one. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see constantly that, that God is uh, about the work of anointing the kings and anointing the prophets and anointing the priests. All three are anointed roles. Um, with oil. Now, there's that wonderful story which we read in the Daily Office just recently about um, uh, there's a time when, uh, when the, the sons of David are vying for the, for the, for the kingship. And what is it that, uh, that Bathsheba actually, or, yeah, she, she enters into this kind of like deal. She says to David, you know, let, let's get this done. Let's make Solomon king. And they take him down to, the, to this um, you know, underground spring under the city of David, which I've been to, actually. I've been to the very place. It's very cool. Um, it's a cave, and, and there they anoint him. Um, you think about Elisha and Elijah. They're anointed. Uh, you think about Moses and uh, Aaron. They're anointed. Um, this word Christos actually kind of means something like oily. Um, it's a reference to this oil. So when we say Jesus Christ, we mean the God who saves and the one who is anointed, the Messiah. Um, in, in Hebrew, uh, this word uh, Moshiach actually refers to these dual realities. Anointed, um, anointed, um, uh, anointed one with us. Be something like that. His only son, our Lord. Why is Jesus called the Father's only son? Jesus alone is God the Son, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He alone is the image of the invisible Father, the one who makes the Father known. He is now and forever will be incarnate as a human, bearing his God-given human name. The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Okay, there's a lot going on there, and I want to break it down. Jesus alone is the Son of God. We've talked about that. Um, when we say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, there's also a term used in the Gospels, which is Son of Man, right? Son of Man is a kind of prophetic term. Uh, you remember that Ezekiel is called Son of Man. Um, and it's, it's essentially a reference to, um, to being, uh, in essence, the son of Adam. Uh, the, the son of, of, uh, of God's first human being, right? Um, so, so Jesus is called Son of Man and Son of God. What should this point us to? Is he the son of both? Yes. He has both natures. And we're going to talk a lot about the interplay between the natures, the two natures in Christ, and I want to say a great deal about that. Um, but for now, we'll just kind of uh, go over it. Co-equal co and co-eternal with God the Father and the God the Holy Spirit. He alone is the image of the invisible Father. Uh, this is a direct quote, actually, from Colossians uh, chapter 1, um, in which uh, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible Father. Um, and in fact, he uses the Greek term icon. He is the icon of the invisible Father. So what's, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that, that God the Father is invisible, and if we want to see God, whom do we look to? To Jesus Christ. There's actually a teaching among the church fathers that the only, that basically this. We can only actually approach the mysteries of God the Father, I would use the word like asymptotically. You know what I mean? Be closer and closer and closer, but never really get there. Right? Like, you can never actually, as a human being, plunge the depths of God such that you actually fully meet God. Now, asymptotically is great, because it kind of says you always are on approach. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's idea, further up and further in, as they're entering into Aslan's country. Remember this? And see, further up, further in, further up, further in. And it's this kind of constant approach, always getting closer, always getting deeper. But the understanding among the fathers is that, that you do this with Jesus Christ, who has plunged into the depths as a human being of God the Father, and alone will do it, but you, you go with him to the Father. Um, such that it's in beholding the face of God in Jesus Christ that you see God. This is that wonderful uh, term, the, be the beatific vision. He alone is the image of the invisible Father, the one who makes the Father known. Um, such that I would actually say that all knowledge of the Father is always mediated and will always be mediated um, as we get ever, ever deeper and closer for all eternity. Um, he is now and forever will be incarnate as a human. Now, this is a very technical word. We use this word incarnate. Um, I love that, the, that in the uh, 2019 Book of Common Prayer, we use this word incarnate. We, use this, we say incarnate directly. And in fact, this has been a changeover in, throughout the church in the West in just the last 10 years. The Roman Catholic liturgy actually went from saying something like, and was made man, saying he was incarnate. Why? Because, because the emphasis in the creedal faith is always on God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the, the quick and dirty way to remember this is, you know, we're Texans, so chili con carne is chili with meat, okay? Incarnation means took on flesh, took on meat. Um, now, I should say this as well. There's kind of this idea among many modern people that says something like this, that we're just sort of, uh, we're, we're human beings, right? Uh, and what are human beings? Well, they're invisible, you know, identities that kind of walk around in a kind of meat suit. And, and this is just completely wrong. Um, we are bodies. It's not that we have bodies, it's that we are bodies, right? It, and we know this because it's like, if I touch you, then what do you say? You don't say, he touched my body. You say, he touched me, right? He did this to me. Um, why? Well, because our bodies are who we are. And so this is, this is to say that, that in the incarnation, um, God the Son does not only just kind of take on a meat suit, what does he do? He takes on a body. Um, he takes it into himself. And what we actually say in the catechism that I just love, and, and I'll, 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 I'll try to rarely say this, but this was in the catechism on my insistence because it's so misunderstood. I actually said, we need to have this very clear. 
um, he is now and forever will be incarnate as a human. So what we Christians actually hold is not that he sort of takes up human flesh and then sort of sets it down in his resurrection or sets it down in his ascension or leaves it behind or just kind of like gets away from it because, ooh, human flesh, yucky, right? What does he instead do? He keeps it. He keeps this human nature always and forever such that what is taken up into the Trinity is a full human nature. Um, This is why you know, our attendance at Ascension Day in the church is always awful. Always, right? It's always awful. It shouldn't be, because we should say, wow, what an amazing mystery, right? This human flesh taken up into God. This full human nature taken up into God. Um, we forget this so easily. Um, and the real problem is, it actually affects how we think about eternity, right? We, we say weird, dumb, you know, if we're, if we're going to really be Orthodox Christians, right, we shouldn't say things like, well, it's only a body. And what do I need it for? And I've had conversations with people that have been something like this, you know, uh, I don't care what you do with my remains. Put them in a trash can. Anyway, it doesn't matter, it's not me. And I want to just say, yes, it is! And all this bit about resurrection, okay, we'll just kind of, we'll talk about that a great deal. All this bit about resurrection, it's not just sort of like, oh, good for Jesus, not for us. No, it's he rises from the dead, which shows us what? That someday he will call me up from the grave and I will stand on my two feet. Not new two feet, not like totally different two feet, but these two feet, redeemed, restored, perfected. I will see him with what? Not a new set of eyeballs, but these eyeballs. Redeemed, restored, resurrected, made glorious. Um, so important that you get this. One of the biggest problems that we have today is that um, in the church is that we sort of think of our bodies as like an accessory. And what we see in Jesus Christ in the incarnation is that our bodies are not just an accessory, they are us. At a very deep level. Um, one of the things, I used, to, I used to do full-time youth ministry, and, and one of the things that I got really active in was kind of thinking theologically about youth ministry. One of the things I used to, used to say in workshops and stuff was like, it would be a major step forward if our young people could just understand that their body and what they do in it is real. That'd be a huge step forward. Like, it would be a huge step forward if you just sort of understood that everything you do in the body is just real. It's not just sort of accidental. It doesn't just sort of like happen and then, oh, big deal. No, it was just my body, right? Because part of the, way, part of the reason that we're so flippant about our bodies um, is that, is that we, we have not really absorbed this reality appropriately. Um, and this is a reason I, I think we, we really need to take our health seriously. Okay? It's, not that, it's not that our bodies won't be redeemed. It's just that like our bodies are us. Right? It's one of the reasons we need to take... Um, um, actions that we undertake in the flesh seriously um it's why it's why christians have always upheld the value of human life and the sanctity of the body okay this isn't just sort of like fun theological wordplay right it's no it's that jesus christ took on human flesh so to violate human flesh is a sin right like i'm, I'm just I'm just putting it all out there This is why Christians have even gone so far as to say mutilation of the flesh in any way whatsoever is immoral, gravely. Um, Now, you might have had your kids circumcised, and I don't want to come down on you for that. That's not the idea, right? Paul Paul allows that. But but this idea that that you can sort of like... And and by the way, this is very prevalent in in society. What we're actually talking about when we talk about um, a lot of the transgender ideology stuff is I think we really just need to make it really simple. We're talking about mutilating the human body. We need to be really abundantly clear about that. We're talking about mutilating that body which bears the image of God. It's gravely immoral. We just need to come out, come right out and say it. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> I think we often talk about it in shadows. We're like, well, no, we just need to say it. It's, it's mutilation of the body. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching now, so I'm going to go back to catechesis. Um, bearing his God-given human name. So even at the right hand of the Father, where he has ascended, he bears this human name, Jesus. 
The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, you know, the, the Old Testament is emphatic about this, that, uh, that, that the world is, comes into being through the Word of God. Um, what we take from that is that all things were created through Him, right? This is what we say, this is what 1 John says, not 1 John, the, the first chapter of John's Gospel. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made which is in Greek, wonderful, technical, like clear language, which is that there ain't nothing that was made without Jesus. Okay? <laughs> That's basically it. Um, and so, so, uh, so we can speak of this. And, and, and this means that, um, that not only are we created through the Son, but we're also, we have our subsistence and our existence in Him. What do you mean when you call Jesus Christ Lord? I acknowledge Jesus' divine authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their leaders, and over every aspect of my life, both public and private. I surrender my entire life to him and seek to live in a way that pleases him. Lord is a very important term. <laughs> um, by the way, so in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, and you, you're, you're probably seeing this in, in spades as you study Hebrew, is... Um, that uh, this name for God, which is in Hebrew, yod heh vav heh, it's a word you don't pronounce, you, uh, the Jews today will say something like um, uh, uh, Hashem, right, the name. Um, the other word that's used is Adonai. And in fact, part of the confusion about this name comes from uh, Hebrew has no vowels. Instead, it has vowel markings that were added later. And so one of the things you do when you read this word yod heh vav heh is the vowel markings for Adonai are put on top of it. And this is where we get that weird, that weird uh, word Jehovah. is by mistranslating the I as a J, right? <laughs> and adding in, the, adding in the vowels, right? So, so Adonai is the word that's often used. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I was referencing this this morning in, in Deuteronomy 6, you know, the, the word Adonai is said. Um, Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. Um, or the Lord is one. Um, so what's understood when, when Jews, let's make this really clear, when Jews are saying Jesus is Lord, what are they saying? Emphatically. Jesus is God. Okay. So I have heard, I can't believe people get away with this, but they'll say things like, Jesus never claimed to be God. The New Testament doesn't claim that Jesus was God. And I'm like, what New Testament are you reading? It's emphatic, right? I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses looking at the New Testament and not getting that. They're like, how? I mean, and they go through and they just edit out the parts they don't like, but that's a long tradition. It's said over and over again, Jesus is Lord. Okay? And by Lord, we mean God. You know, we even know this from antiquity, right? On the coins, Father Nicholas made reference to this a couple weeks ago, um, or last Sunday, that on the coinage is printed... Caesar, Augustus, Curios, Theos, right? Meaning what? Caesar, Augustus, Lord and God, right? The, the coin that Jesus asked for, the denarius, is an idol. And he's asking them, whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Okay, we'll give it to Caesar. Like, <laughs> like that's, that's the answer. That's the response, right? Caesar's Lord of, of the Roman Empire, Okay. Full stop. Who's Lord of all? As Paul puts it. You hear this language constantly in the New Testament. He is Lord of all. Um, Philippians. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I mean, it's just over and over and over again. What's being said here? Jesus Christ is God and Lord of all. Okay. Now, I want to say a little bit about this. Because I think this is a good analogy. Um, the archbishop actually says that this was the this was the thing he heard him preaching that absolutely changed his life. So if you can imagine your life as a as a chest of drawers, and you kind of go through and name the drawers, we do this all the time. We compartmentalize our life. Have you heard you know you've heard this language? Um, we kind of stick one thing here and one thing here and one thing here and one thing here, and we just sort of think I'm that there and I'm that there and I'm that there and I'm that there and I'm this thing at work and I'm this thing here, and and that's my compartmentalized life. I've got home, I've got church, I've got work, I've got school, I've got all these other little bins, right? 
Imagine that. A lot of people just sort of think, well, Jesus wants, Jesus, Jesus' Lord is just sort of like a church thing. Stick it in that drawer. Or Jesus' Lord is just like church and maybe family and home. Okay. No. Jesus wants the whole dang chest of drawers. Every single drawer belongs to him. Every single drawer submitted to his, to his lordship. Um, we get this in our brain somehow that, that we live in this world of sacred and secular. We live in this world of, of holy and common. Of, um, uh, we, we, uh, there are things that we would not do in here that we would do elsewhere. Because <laughs> we say, oh, no, 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 that's holy there. But our house, yeah, not so much. This is one of the things that we're really trying to do at Christ Church is to say every place is holy. Um, it's one of the reasons that when you get your house blessed, you get a cross that's exactly like that one to put next to your door. Why? To remind you that your home is an extension of the church. To remind you that your home is holy. That you go through the liturgies and the holy liturgies of life in your home. There's a connection being drawn here. Right? You pray in your home. You serve in your home. You love in your home. You uh, care for your children in your home. You care for others in your home. Like it's a holy place, um, and Jesus is Lord. Um, and in fact, this is a battle that goes back way back, right? One of the things that um, was happening in Jewish society in the time of Jesus was in the time he was, which he walked the earth was, uh, was something like this. The Sadducees were of the mind that the only thing that really matters is what happens in the temple, right? Like everything else outside the temple is just for like, eh doesn't really count, right? God's not really there, so it doesn't really matter. The Pharisees were of a mind to say something like this. Actually, there should be deep connections between our home and the temple. And in fact, you can carry out real faithfulness at home without ever stepping into the temple. So one of the things the Pharisees were saying in the midst of the diaspora, where Jews, a lot of, actually the majority of the world's Jews didn't live in Jerusalem, right? They're saying what? No, you can be very faithful. This is the Judaism that survives without a temple, by the way. This is the Judaism of the Pharisees. Why do I say this? Well, I say this because uh, one, of the, one of the ways in which we misread the Old Testament is we read things like, okay, uh, I have to take a bath on Friday nights. Why do I take a bath? Well, uh, you know, we think maybe it's a ritual bath. What does it do? Uh, well, it's good to take a bath once a week, but there's more going on here. Actually, what's going on in much of these kind of ritual washings and things in the Old Testament is drawing this deep connection between the home and the temple. So that the kinds of things going on in the temple are going on in the home. So I really want you to see this, that, that for Jesus to be Lord means that Jesus is Lord of all. Okay. Um, and we really need to remember this as we enter this election. <laughs> really need to remember. I think I said earlier in, in, uh, in catechesis that We Christians have a way of saying that, that uh, as Paul did, as Peter actually did, you know, honor the emperor, right? You should honor the emperor. We should honor the king. We should honor the president. We should honor all those people, right? We should do it, right? But there's a way in which saying Jesus is Lord means that those people are illegitimate. That they, like, illegitimately hold office while simultaneously submitting to that earthly authority. It's a paradox, right? It's the heart of it. You just sort of say, well... Their authority is illegitimate and it's illegitimately exercised. However, we're going to follow it because God has put it there. Okay. But still, Jesus is Lord. The reason I want you to see that is what drives the martyrs to their death is that they're unwilling to recognize um, Caesar's authority over the things of God. Um, it's why when, when, the, when the emperors ask all, all citizens of empire to sacrifice a, one tiny grain of incense before an image of the emperor, right? This is like constant in the, in, the, in the early church. It's like, just one little lousy grain of incense. What's the big deal, right? Offer the incense and you'll live. Which, by the way, most Christians actually had a really hard time with this. It was, it was not like universal, like we're going to stand and not do it. Like, most people did. But the martyrs went to their graves. They went to the lions. They went, uh, they went to the stake. Um, 
professing this faith, Jesus is Lord. And so when it comes down to it, I'll obey him and not you. Um, and we, we have to have that attitude today. Um, especially as, um, as I think one of the things that's going on in, in our world today is that um, totalitarianism is on the rise. Um, the kind of liberal society we used to inhabit where people are just sort of happy to let everybody live the way they want and, and muck with it as little as possible is just over. Like, listen to the political discourse, right? It's, it's winner takes all. Winner gets to tell you how your life is going to be. Winner gets to mandate, right? And that's really how people think about it. They're like, winner gets to tell the others how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. Um, in this time of totalitarianism, we really need to be remembered. We really need to remember this, that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we need to remember it in that way. All right. And so, so what's at the end of this? Is it a kind of like subscription? Like I sign on the dotted line, Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, okay, I did that. We're good. Let's move on. There's a wonderful book that, you know, if you haven't read it, you should read this. It's like one of the most deeply Christian books ever written, uh, Brideshead Revisited. And um, it's, a, it's a lovely book. And if you don't want to read it, which I suggest you do, you can watch the whole BBC series, 10 parts, on Amazon Prime, and it's just amazing. Okay? I think it's still up there. Um, but there's a character who is like the most, he's like the image of modern human beings. And he's just a brash idiot like he's just he's just he's just terrible right and, and the, the author makes no I mean, it's just he's he's depicted as awful and he wants to marry this catholic woman and so he has to be sort of catechized by this priest and the priest says he's just unbearable like he's he's the most he's the most uh, you know he's he's just a he's just a pagan basically is what he says about him and, and what this guy this guy wrecks which the word that he's, the name that he has is very telling, because what's his name? Rex, king. He's the modern man. He's, he's king of his own life. He, he says where he's going to go. He does what he wants. All he says to the priest is, just show me where to sign on the bottom line so we can get this done, because I just want to marry this woman. He's just like, I want to sign on the bottom line. And the point that Waugh is making in this novel is, that's not how faith works. You don't just sign on the bottom line and say, Jesus is Lord, and that's it, and get on with your life. No, it's, it entails surrender of your kingship over yourself. Um, so so uh, this is so important. It means that Jesus is Lord, and I am not. This surrender is so important. Um, at the heart of all human life is this question of surrender. Um, it's the most important question you can be asked, is, how have you surrendered to Jesus Christ the Lord? Um, one of my favorite authors, um, um, uh, a, French, um, a French priest, um, De Cussade, writes of this, this time, it's all time, it's the sacrament of the present moment. It's kind of like God working in the invisible things, behind the scene, behind what we experience in all of life, and that God is working. And the question he asks is, you know, how are you surrendering yourself to God in this visible world that's just shot through with grace? That's like a wonderful question, right? You can just sort of sit with that for a long time. Like, how am I surrendering myself to the God who's working behind this veil in all of life? Um, okay, let's move on. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What does it mean that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Jesus was conceived not through a human father, but by the Holy Spirit, coming upon the Virgin Mary in power. Okay. So in the Apostles' Creed, we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, some translations in recent years have said he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, which actually is just wrong, and it, it just always rubbed me the wrong way. No, he, the language is very technical. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um. Now, this is a great mystery, right? How does this work? I mean, are we talking about Holy Spirit inseminating an egg? I mean, how are we talking about this? Um, and, and the mystery is still upheld here, but it's this, and I really want you to get this. Where does Jesus get his whole human nature? 
Mary. It all comes from Mary. Every last jot and tittle and drop. Um, it's not sort of specially created in the lab and then uh, implanted through in vitro fertilization in her womb, right? That's not how it works. Um, he, is, he is conceived by the, so the power by which, this is people that are kind of pre-biological, right? They're simply saying, here's what happens. The power, the, 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 the being by which he is conceived, right, instead of a human father, is the Holy Spirit. Okay, full stop. His entire human nature comes from his mother. That's really important that we, that we understand that. So it's sort of specially created. It comes from her. All right. No human father. All right. Um, this is why, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of continue on. There are many Christians today who are claiming something like this, that the virgin birth, the idea of the virgin birth, is not necessary to Christian orthodoxy. So what's the alternative? He was conceived. He was conceived by natural means. Like they don't. I don't. I don't know how they can possibly say this, and and be anything but something like adoptionistic, which is a heresy, by the way. Like God, you know, Jesus is just sort of like a good man who gets kind of taken on by the Father in a really special, unique way. Like that's not what's going on here. From the moment of his conception, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Now, this is important, by the way, too, right? From the moment of his conception. This is why human this is why Christians have always held that life is sacred from the moment of conception till natural death. It's all tied up in what we teach about Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man from the moment of his conception and not later, right, then he is fully God and fully man, and therefore human life is valuable from the moment of conception. I didn't quite realize this until I was um, doing kind of pro-life ministry. Uh, I used to kind of I used to go hang out by, a, by an abortion clinic every Thursday, and um, I was surprised at the number of Muslims that came, like really deeply shocked by. Them. Muslims all the time, and I really wanted to get to the bottom of this. Like, what, what, what does Islam teach about human life? When does it begin? And and the answer is, a, a child is human from the moment that it kicks you. So, like, the the time you know that a human being is a human being is when it, is when you feel this quickening in the womb. And that's why, in Islam, abortion is actually permitted up to that time. It's also why, if you really want to characterize Islam, it's, it's a kind of Christological heresy, right? It's this idea of like, well, you know, Jesus Christ isn't really God. Um, he's sort of, uh, you know, really just a very special prophet. He doesn't really die on the cross. Like, what, what it really emphasizes is a, is, a, is a kind of part, well, it's a kind of... Um, distancing from this teaching that Jesus Christ takes on a full human nature. That's actually its history, historically, it was tied to that to those forms of um, Christian heresy. So I want you to hear that. Um, this is, the stakes are pretty high when it comes to the incarnation, I should say, theologically. <laughs> uh, there's, an old, there's an old kind of paraphrasing of the fathers and their, and their teaching on this that I should share with you. you know, that which was not assumed cannot be redeemed. So if, if God the Son doesn't take it on in the Incarnation, then it can't be redeemed. So full human nature, meaning human soul, human mind, human, into, human intellect, right? Um, uh, all of it. It's, all, it's further important in a really big way, which is that um, the things we often think are part and parcel with human life, certain things like sin, if you just say, oh, sin's essential to human life, isn't it? So we say, when we look at the Incarnation, actually, really and truly, no, not really, not at all. Right? We might say, um, um, you know, to err is human. Well, not if you look at Jesus Christ. Um, and this is really the thing that I want you to see, is that the Incarnation shows us what it means to really be human. Um, this is why I love, I love this image of the resurrection behind us. Like, this is what we're after. 
Um, this is the reality towards which we are, we are striving. What happened at Jesus' conception in Mary's womb? The eternal Son, whom God named Jesus, assumed a fully human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary, at the moment of conception in her womb. So again, this is just the language of from the moment of conception, the very moment. Um, now, Christians have actually had different ideas of, what con- of when conception happens. Um, and, and, of course, that's largely informed by science and other kinds of ways of looking at things. Uh, but, but, but the reality of it is that whatever conception means, right, to them, um, is what they hold to. <laughs> so it's like, there are people who actually hold, like, conception just happens, like, when, when, when the deed is done, right? That's, that's when the conception is, right? Um, uh, you know, we, we know it happens a few days later, right? Um, but, but the reality of it is, you know, when we look at the incarnation, we can just say, from the word, go. And this is actually what's been taught, right? That, that Jesus Christ is incarnate at the very moment when Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. Done. Okay. Um, so that's, that's huge and really important. Okay. Why is it important to say that Jesus was born? It is important to affirm that he is one of us, truly human, born to a human mother, and raised in a human family. Um, this birth is so important. Uh, he is born, right? Um, you know, there are, it's really hard to kind of calculate all these and, like, and catalog them, but, but the reality is that there were lots of ancient Christians who would even hold, like, yeah, he wasn't really born. He just sort of appeared to be born. After all, birth is yucky. So, like, we don't really want to say he was born, because, you know, I mean, born is, like, it's bloody, and it's hard, and it's, like, there's a lot of suffering involved, and, like, we don't really want to say that, do we? And yet, I love what, I mean, G.K. Chesterton says something like this, if you want Christian orthodoxy, just look to the blood. Like, it's got to be bloody. Because that's where we see that, like, real human nature, real human life. Um, and so, so, so that's there. He was born. In fact, one of the things that, that Anglicans have always been super uncomfortable with is this idea that like Mary had no pain in childbirth. They're like, no. No, no way, man. Like, like real human birth. Um, it's just an opinion, though, so there you go. Um, if you hold the alternate opinion, I'm not going to condemn you because Scripture doesn't say it. But, but I'm like, yeah, real birth. Okay. Um, was Mary the only biological parent of Jesus? We're rehashing a lot of things. Yes. While still a virgin, Mary submitted to the will of God and bore the Son of God. Therefore, she is held in high honor. However, in obedience to God, Joseph took Mary as his wife and raised Jesus as his son. Um, we've said a lot about this so far, but the thing that I really want to say this morning is, is this little sentence there, therefore she is held in high honor. Um, Anglicanism kind of hangs on to, and really hangs on to in really deeply biblical ways, uh, this high honor of Mary. Well, why? Remember she goes to visit her, her kinswoman Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea, and what does she say? All generations will call me blessed. Um, for he that is mighty has magnified me, and holy is his name. We see this every evening in, in evening prayer. Um, there is a very long tradition dating back to the very earliest centuries, um, specifically in the 5th century, of... Um, of giving hyper honor, high honor to Mary. In fact, the word used in Greek is hyperdulia. Um, it's kind of like our, our great service, um, more so than to any of the saints. Well, why? I mean, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this because they grew up in traditions where it's like Mary was just, I'll put it this way, just kind of like a vehicle for Jesus to be born through like just a body to get the job done. And, and Anglicans are uncomfortable with this. Like, by and large, we just sort of say, no, there's a lot more going on there, right? There's a whole lot more going on there. Um, and, uh, and I think biblically, there's a lot more going on there. So I want you to hear that. Um, various forms of kind of like Marian uh, piety and, and devotion are actually held closely within Anglicanism, uh, even if it's just like the Magnificat at night many places it goes much further. And so for a lot of people, it's like a new thing. Like, oh, there are Anglicans who have like Marian piety. It's like, yes, <laughs> lots of us, right? And so uh, this is sort of a, a thing that's surprising to some people. But, but, here, but that's the reason that she is. She submits to the will of God and bore the Son of God. 
I mean, think about it. There's even that scene when, when, um, when Jesus is, the disciples say, your mother and your brothers are here, and he says, who are my mother and brothers? <laughs> and it can be seen like, oh, he's being really mean to his mama here. Like, this is not good. But like, no, that's not what's going on. He's drawing attention to why she's his mother. Because she says, my mother and my brother are the ones who, who know the will of God and do it. Right? Okay. All right, let's, let's finish up here. What is the relationship between Jesus' divine and human natures? At the moment of Jesus' conception, the divine nature of the one eternal person of the Son was united to our human nature. Therefore, Jesus Christ is fully and truly both divine and human, but without sin. His two natures are united without division, separation, mixture, or change. Um, recently, there was some criticism leveled at the catechism because it says, well, the catechism doesn't say Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Well, yes, it does. Um, it absolutely does. It says so in the very opening parts of this section. Um, but let's deal with this question. Um, at the moment of Jesus' conception, the divine nature of the one eternal person of the Son was united to our human nature. Now, I want to be clear about this. Sometimes people, when they say fully human, fully divine, they mean fully human, but like a different kind of human. Sometimes it's just like, we don't want to say he has our human nature, we want to say he has a human nature. I think it's really important the catechism is actually phrased this way because we want to be very clear. He is, of like, he, he is not just of like nature with us. He is of one nature with us. Look, I mean, I just want you to look at yourself. Look at yourself. Like, look at your hands, okay? The backs of your hands, okay? Just look at them, okay? Pinch yourself. Ouch, okay? If Jesus did that, he would say the same thing. Ouch. If you cut him, he will bleed. And if you cut him deep enough, what will happen? He will die. He will feel it in his body. Okay, do you see what's going on here? We're not just sort of saying special human nature. We're saying full human nature. He gets it from his mother. Okay, this is really important. Okay. Now, the relationship between these two natures is really important. There's this uh, wonderful theological concept um, called the communicatio idiomatum. And, you know, most catechesis classes, you don't get this, but you're going to get it here because it's important, right? And it means that the idioms which we use to speak about the Son and speak about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, translate back and forth. Okay? So, stuff like this. Did God die on the cross? Yes. I remember having a, defending the catechism, and a bishop was like, we don't really want to say that a bishop. It's like saying, this is how, even bishops need to be catechized, okay? <laughs> we don't really want to say God died on the cross, do we? And, and I was standing there, and I said, Actually, Bishop, that's the gospel. <laughs> and, and this language is important. We say, God died on the cross. Now, does, do we mean that the eternal God, who's always existed for all time and forever, stopped existing? Well, no. And I actually said to this bishop, and the same is true of us! <laughs> he was worried because he believed that death means disappearing. In his heart of hearts, poor guy. I mean, the reality of it is that when we say death, we don't mean stop existing, or we shouldn't. But that's what gives us pause about it. We don't like it because we think it means you stop existing. It's like, well, no, that's not what we mean. Okay? This is all so important. Um, it gets to the very heart of things. Okay. Is Mary the mother only of the human nature of Jesus or of the divine person? first is a heresy. It's called Nestorianism. The second is orthodoxy. And that's why we call Mary the mother of God. Does it mean she originates the divine nature? No. We're emphatically clear about that. What it means is that she's the mother of God. <laughs> Jesus Christ, who is God. Okay. Do you see how this works? So these idioms communicate back and forth. They work back and forth, right? So another way we might put it is to say, uh, oh, Jesus heals the leper. Who's healing the leper? Is it just God? Just His divine nature healing the leper? It's Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, healing a leper. He is acting just as much as God as He is as a human being. So when, when you read the Gospels, just be attentive to this, because sometimes we just say, all the good stuff is his divine nature, all the stuff that's just sort of normal, like eating and drinking and all that stuff. That's the human nature. Or like, here's another one. 
the night before he's crucified. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's struggling with this. He's, he's having a hard time with this. And we say, that's his human nature. Like, really struggling. That's the human part of him. But no. No, 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 no. Like, what's, what's, what's going on in the garden is very nature God, very nature human being is having a struggle. We have to hold this intention. And what does he say at the end of it? Not my will, but thine be done. So, so say that he willingly submits to the Father. It's not a fact of his nature. He willingly does this. Like, I could go on forever. Anyway, um, it is to say, the two natures are united without division, separation, mixture, or change. Right? So we don't sort of say that the, that the divine nature kind of overtakes the human nature. Okay? There's, this, uh, there's a heresy called monothelitism in which the divine will in Christ overtakes the human will such that the human will is basically non-existent and doesn't really matter if it's really there at all. Heresy, okay? <laughs> Orthodox Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ has a full human nature and a full divine nature. He has two wills. And these wills are not just sort of like an automatic submission to the human will to the divine will. He actually wills to submit to the divine will. Okay? It's just, you see what's going on here? This is really key. Um, Question 58, what does the union of Jesus' two natures teach you about his ministry? All Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. His human words and deeds are saving because they are the words and deeds of God the Son. So important, so important. Um, what is it, what is it that gives his saving death on the cross such power? Is it, that, is it just that he's God? Yeah, we're almost done. Is it just that he's God? Not really at the end of the day. Part of it, big part of it, 100% that for sure. But it's also that he's the perfect human being, right? Um, and these are two are, are united perfectly. Um, I say all of this with a great deal of emphasis this morning, and I'm going to wrap up right now, um, because this is at the heart of where a lot of confusion is today in the church. It's just right here in the middle of the incarnation. It's just kind of believing that um, Jesus Christ, you know, oh yeah, we say he's a human being. We don't really mean that. Or on the other end, kind of saying like, eh, like really uncomfortable with this idea of incarnation. Um, God taking on the ickiness of human life. Like really uncomfortable with Jesus having struggles. And like the understanding is these things work together. They function together. Um, such that we, we speak about the mystery through which we are saved. Um, this is at the heart of salvation. And I'm going to say one more thing. I'll say this in the sermon, so I'm previewing it for you. But the reality of it, it's not just the heart of salvation, it's the heart of every good to which we could possibly aspire. Like, we can't love apart from the person of Christ. Because that's impossible. We're so deeply limited. We have to have um, one who is love incarnate giving us his grace to do so. Um, and, like, listen, this is why Jesus says, you know, um, you know, when did I see you naked and hungry and all this? He says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Because actually, anytime we, we, we undertake an act of love in the name of Jesus, like, and by his power, we're actually loving him who is our neighbor. Um, so just kind of hold that there. Like, our neighbor. Like, not some special human being that's, that's in a different category. No, our neighbor. Our, our, the toughest language is our brother. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> Enjoy that. Oh, geez, I really did go over. Well, <laughs> hello.